Well, as was mentioned, I am a professor at California Baptist University, and it astounds me, but I am in my 16th year of being a full-time professor, which every time I think about it catches me a little bit off guard because, Lord willing, if I stay in this profession, in a few years, I will have been teaching longer than my students will have been alive. And over those 16 years, I've had a lot of interactions with students and gotten a lot of emails from students over those 16 years. And most of those emails are what you might expect. Can you clarify this assignment? I'm going to be absent. But every once in a while, I get an email that causes me to be a little bit perplexed. For example, every once in a while, I get an email where the student spells my name incorrectly, which is confusing to me primarily because they have to write my name correctly in order for the email to get to me. So I can't figure out how they can type my email address with my names correctly, but they can't spell it correctly in the body of the email. Another email I got earlier this semester quickly became one of my favorite emails. The student started off with, Dear Dr. Winter, this has nothing to do with anything and is not at all important. <laughs> okay. But... Probably the most common email that I get, especially this time of year, has to do with a student who has some questions about their grade. And a while ago, I got an email from a student. It was after the semester had ended, finals had been taken, assignments had been turned in, and this student wanted to argue, wanted to contend for a passing grade, which, again, befuddled me a little bit, because as I looked at these students' assignments, as I looked at the student exam scores, there was exactly zero evidence that the student understood the material. So I thought, what possible reason could they have for thinking that they should get a passing grade? And the student's reasoning was this, this isn't the first time I've taken the class. In fact, it wasn't the second time the student had taken the class. The student thought, because I've been enrolled in the class three times, and I've stayed enrolled in the class three times all the way to the end, obviously, I have earned a passing grade. Well, as you can imagine, I found that logic a little faulty. And in our passage today, James tells us that sometimes people apply similarly faulty logic when it comes to the issue of their faith. And while we can laugh at my students' absurdity of thought, and we can say, oh, how ridiculous those young adults are, when it comes to faulty logic and the topic we're going to discuss today, it is no laughing matter. It is eternally serious. So if you haven't already, turn with me to our passage, James 2, verses 14 through 19, where we're going to talk about this very serious, very significant discussion. James 2.14 says this, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have, faith, you, ha you have faith and I have works. 
Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. James is talking about in this passage what type of faith saves a person. And he stresses that this is a very important discussion. And he does that in a few different ways. First of all, and we don't see it in the English, but in the Greek, when he starts off that verse 14, he used what's called the vocative voice. And the vocative voice is, connotes emphasis. It's like James is saying, hey, pay attention, pay attention, listen up. This matters. I'm going to emphasize that this is a very critical discussion we're about to have. Another way that he emphasizes the importance of the discussions is he, once again, as he has done throughout the letter, calls the readers of this letter, my brothers. It's like he's saying, hey, this matters. And it matters not only because it's a critically important discussion, it matters because I care for you. I love you. You are the family of God, and I want to make sure that you get this right. Another way that he emphasizes that this is a very important discussion is he starts the discussion off with two rhetorical questions. He says, what good is it if someone has faith but doesn't have works? It's like he's saying, hey, this matters. I care about you, and I want you to think about these things. I want you to ponder these questions that I'm asking you. And in fact, how he phrases the questions, that second question, how it's phrased in Greek, again, we don't see it in English, but the answer to the question has to be no. It's like he's saying, I want you to think about these things, and I want you to know that that kind of faith, it can't save a person. I'm already going to tell you that that kind of faith that doesn't have works is not saving faith. So he's telling his listeners, he's telling his readers, pay attention, this matters, and it's critically important that you get this right. Similarly, you and I need to, point number one, appreciate the importance of intellectual, I'm sorry, of authentic faith. Appreciate the importance of authentic faith. This is not an issue of mere intellectual curiosity. This is not something where someone can be like, ah, you can have one opinion, I can have another, and it's okay. It is something that is critically important because a person's eternal destination, their security for eternity is at stake. James is saying that we need to know what kind of faith saves a person. And he wants them to think about what kind of faith they may think is adequate for salvation. And he says, what good is it? It's like he's saying, how does it benefit someone? How is this profitable? If someone has faith, but they don't have works, is there any type of value to that faith? And it may even make us think of Jesus' question in Mark 8.36, where he says, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, but he loses his soul? James is saying, we have to think about how does it benefit? Is there any type of eternal assurance that comes when we say we have faith, but we don't have the works to back it up? 
In my classes, I'll often ask my students, do you, do you understand what I'm saying? Do you get what I'm trying to say? Do you have any questions? And invariably, they'll say, no questions. Yes, I understand. And I'll even ask them, okay, interactive class, respond to me. Do you understand? Yes, we understand. But you know when I know that they understand? When I see it in the assignments and their exams. When they demonstrate to me that they get it that they're not just mentally assenting to the fact that they understand, but there's actual proof that they get the material, that they have mastered it. James is saying that the person who gets this, the person that understands what true faith is, their life will demonstrate it. But if their life doesn't match up with their professed faith, then they are not truly saved. Now, we have to be careful here because we have to make sure that we understand what James is not saying. James is not saying that works are necessary for salvation. He's not saying that if you do enough good things, that your works will qualify you for being saved. What he is saying is that the person who is truly saved will show that they are saved by how they live. And while this passage has caught a lot, caused a lot of controversy, this really isn't a new concept because this has been the teaching of John the Baptist. This has been the teaching of Jesus Christ. In Luke 3, 7 through 14, when John the Baptist is in the wilderness proclaiming the way of the Lord, the people that come to him and say, what should we do? He says, well, once you've believed in the Messiah, now you go and you give your tunic to those in need. You share your food. He says your faith, your belief in the Messiah should show up in how you live. Similarly, Jesus in Matthew 7, 24, says that a man who hears the words of salvation and does them. The man who hears God's word and then puts them into practice, that is the man whose foundation is secure. That is the person who has authentic faith. And James, is in our passage, is going to turn to an illustration to help make sure that we truly understand what type of faith he is talking about, what type of faith someone may say they have but may not be authentic, genuine faith. And he says in verses 15 through 17, as he gives this illustration, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed, and lacking in daily food. And one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body? What good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. See, there's a person who thinks they have faith. They say, I have faith. They have faith. But it's not showing up in their lives. It's not impacting the way that they live. They may say they're saved. They may think that they're saved. But the fact that their faith is not genuine will show up in their words, their actions, and their attitudes. In other words, what James wanted to be sure is that his audience knew that there was such thing as inauthentic faith. And we need to make sure, point two, that we're we don't be fooled by an imposter faith. Don't be fooled by an imposter faith. 
James repeats the phrase that he started our passage with. It says in verse 14, what good is it? And then he says again in verse 16, what good is that? What good is it to say I have faith but not works? And what good is it to the person who comes to you in need if you go and you wish them well, but you don't actually do anything to meet their needs? How does that benefit them? And and James is saying that faith by itself, that is not actively accompanied by work, is not truly salvific faith. Now, you may be thinking, wow, that can be a little scary to think that someone could think they're saved, but not actually be saved. So how do I know if I have an imposter faith? I don't want to be fooled. I want to make sure that my faith is genuine. Well, here are seven characteristics that I came up with for what an imposter faith looks like and does. We want to know if we have an inauthentic faith. Here are seven characteristics that we can look at. The first one comes directly from our passage, James 2.15, and that is that an imposter faith speaks more than it acts. It speaks more than it acts. You can see here there's someone who comes to someone in the church with a need. And the person's response is a whole lot of words, right? Peace. I hope it goes well with you, right? It would be like if someone came to us and said, I am not sure I have enough money to feed my kids this week. And we said, good luck with that. Or if we're from the South, we'd say, bless your heart, right? We're speaking, we're saying good things. It's, it's kind to wish someone well. But an inauthentic faith will stop at the words. They'll say a lot. They'll say, I have faith, I believe, I hope things go well for you. But they won't put that faith into action. As opposed to a genuine faith, which will, as it says in Colossians 1.10, Colossians 1.10, a genuine faith is bearing fruit in every good work. Every good work. They're constantly acting. They're constantly putting their faith into practice if someone is truly saved. Another characteristic, letter B, of an imposter faith is that it disregards God's commands. It disregards God's commands. See, the fact that these people should be helping those around them was not something that was news to them. As we talked about last week, they knew the parable of the Good Samaritan. The parable of the Good Samaritan said, hey, if you encounter someone, a stranger, an enemy, and you have a way to meet their needs, to show love to them, you should do it. And yet an imposter faith will say, maybe God says I should do it, but I don't have the time. I don't really care that much. Someone else will take care of it. They will disregard God's command. In contrast to a true authentic faith, which according to 1 John 2, 3, says that if we know God, we truly know him, we will do what he says. A third characteristic of an imposter faith is it ignores the church's needs. It ignores the church's needs. We talked about the parable of the Good Samaritan, and that was a stranger. That was someone that the Samaritan didn't know. 
But in this particular case, James takes great care to show that the person who has a need is someone in the church. Did you catch that? It says, if a brother or sister, that's very unusual in Greek to point out if it's a man or a woman. And it's like James is saying, look, if anyone in the church, someone that says they are part of the family of God, that you fellowship with, that you worship with, comes to you and has a need, and all you do is say, oh, I hope things get better for you, then you may not have an authentic faith. Because if we truly have faith, if we have a saving faith, we will strive to meet the needs of the church. It says in 1 Peter 4.10 that we are to use the gifts that God has given us to serve others. And there is no one who should get more attention in that regard than the people, the brothers and sisters that God has placed around us. They should be our first priority in using the gifts that God has given us to meet their needs. Because ladies, the talents that God has given you, the opportunities that he has given you, the resources that he has given you, and the gifts and talents and opportunities and resources he's given me, they are not for us. He doesn't give them to us because he hopes we have a really happy, wonderful life. He gives them to us because we are to be his conduit. We are to be his ambassadors. They are to come from him to us and out to other people. And the church should receive special focus and attention. They should be the first recipients of the gifts and bounty that God has given us. We should be striving constantly to meet the needs of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, am I saying you have to meet every need? No. Sometimes you may not be able to meet a need. Sometimes you may not have the resources, or you may not have the time, or you may have other legitimate commitments. But if you see a need and you can meet it, God says a true Christian will do what they can to make sure that need is met. They will put into practice their faith and will do what they can to ensure that that brother or sister in Christ is no longer in need. Another characteristic of an imposter faith, letter D, is it fails to make an impact. It fails to make an impact. An imposter faith is inactive. It's not doing anything. It's inert. It's not moving in any direction. It is not causing a change in other people's lives. As opposed to a genuine faith, which Jesus said in Matthew 5.16, that if we have a genuine faith, that others are going to see our good works and give glory to God the Father in heaven. Ladies, have you thought about the arithmetic of that? It's amazing. It's like compound interest, right? You do something good. If you're a genuine Christian, you do something good. And you, because you're doing something good, you're obeying God, you're giving glory to God. But what happens is other people can look upon that good thing that you're doing and God gets glory from them as well because they're looking and they're thinking, wow, God must be really gracious to that person to allow them to respond to that insult that way. Or look at how kind God is because this person is so kind to others and I know that they're following hard after Jesus. 
God gets glory through our good works and get God gets glory from the other people who are looking at our good works and saying, wow, how good God is. It's amazing. And an authentic, genuine, saving faith will be doing those good works so that God is receiving multiplied glory. God is getting glory through the things that we do and through the witness of other people who are seeing God's goodness in our lives. Another characteristic of an imposter faith comes from Matthew 13, the parable of the sowers. And that is, letter E, an imposter faith will collapse under trial. You guys remember the parable of the sower. There's a sower going out and he's scattering seeds. And they, they fall on different types of soil. And one of those soils that it falls upon is the rocky soil. And Jesus, when he's explaining this parable in Matthew 13, 20 through 21, says the rocky soil, that is seed that has fallen, that is faith that has started, but as it experiences difficulties, as it experiences trials, as it experiences the challenges of life, it fails to take root. And if we do not have an authentic faith, if we have an imposter faith, when we encounter difficulties, when we encounter hard things, our faith will not stand. It will collapse under the trials that we endure. As opposed to a genuine faith, which we've seen even earlier in the book of James, James 1.12 says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. And it's that person who remains steadfast, who remains faithful, even when things are hard, that will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. An inauthentic faith will collapse under trial, and an inauthentic faith, an imposter faith, will, letter F, be consumed by the cares of the world. Be consumed by the cares of the world. Again, we see this in the parable of the sower, some of the seed fell among, among thorns. And what happened is it looked like someone had the right response. It looks like someone has a genuine profession. But then, as they start to grow, they start to get consumed by the cares of the world. They start getting bothered that they can't go to that party in their neighborhood. Or that... Following Christ means they're not going to have the coolest car or the biggest home. And they say, I want to make sure that I have Jesus, but I also have all my worldly concerns taken care of as well. And that person doesn't have a true, authentic faith. Because a true, authentic faith, Matthew 6, will seek first the kingdom of God. A true, authentic faith cares first and foremost about God and his kingdom. And the cares of the world are insignificant in light of that concern. The last characteristic that I have for an imposter faith, letter G, is that an imposter faith is dead. And I get this directly from our passage. Verse 17 says, Faith by itself, if it does not have works, 
is dead. Now we have to understand that word dead, it's not like Princess Bride where someone's mostly dead. This is like, this is truly dead. This is a rotting corpse. That's the word in Greek. Like this is disgusting. I mean, think about it. If you are a Jew, even if you're a Jewish Christian, you've been raised knowing that a dead body is ceremonially unclean. It was repugnant to you. It was something that you would do anything to avoid. And James is telling these Jewish Christians that if you do not have faith that is backed up by your works, it's like that faith is like that rotting corpse. It is something to be avoided. It is something that is repugnant. And James is saying that a faith that is not authentic, a faith that is an imposter faith, is just like that disgusting, rotting, dead body. It is not alive. And Romans 6.11 says, if we are dead in our sins, if we are dead in our sins and not alive with Christ, then we are condemned in the final judgment. As opposed to an authentic faith, which it says in Galatians 2.20, that those who are truly saved will live by faith. They won't have a dead faith. Their faith will be alive. In fact, all of their lives will be characterized by their faith in Jesus. It's important to recognize these characteristics of an imposter faith because we need to make sure that as 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, that we test ourselves. That we look at this list and we say, do I truly have a faith that is going to save me? Do I truly have a faith that is authentic? We need to test ourselves and make sure our faith is genuine. And James is going to bring that point home in the rest of our passage. James 2, 18 through 19 says this, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. James is employing a rhetorical technique here called a diatribe. He's asking his readers, he's asking us to imagine a discussion between two people. And what James is trying to do in this diatribe is he's trying to point out two false ideas. He's trying to point out two errors in doctrine. The first one is he's trying to say, there are some people who think there are two ways to be saved. You have faith, I have works. Either one gets you to heaven. And he's saying, that's not right. And the second thing that he's trying to combat is he's trying to combat the idea that having correct doctrine, attesting, giving mental attestation to theological truth, is enough to be saved. And what he's saying is neither of these are right. You can't say, you can't separate faith and works and say there's two ways to be saved. And you can't say that just believing the right things is enough to be saved. Instead, what you need to do and what I need to do is point number three, diligently develop a productive faith. Diligently develop a productive faith. See, James is trying to say faith and works, 
They're inextricably linked. You cannot separate them. And thinking that you can is kind of ridiculous. And he does that by saying, look, let's look at someone, what someone might, who has faith, what they might say. And he says in verse 19, you believe that God is one. And someone who says, look, I have faith. And I know I have faith because I believe that God is one. And he's saying, that's, that's right doctrine. Good job. You do well. And that you believe that God is one would be immediately recognizable to the Jewish readers. Because this was something that a devoted Jew would say every morning and every night. It comes from Deuteronomy 6.4. It's called the Shema. Deuteronomy 6.4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And in the Jewish nation, if you were to look at someone, you would say, is that person a devoted Jew? One of the things that you would look for is, did they say this every morning and every night? It was an indication of devotion. And James is saying, that is correct theology. That is good. Good job. But a mere recitation of words is not sufficient for salvation. Because even the demons would affirm that. Even the demons would say, yes, God is one. And they have a proper response to that truth in the sense that they shudder. They recognize that there is one God, and he is sovereign, and he is powerful, and he could destroy them in an instance. But just that recitation of words and just recognizing how great God is doesn't mean that those demons are saved because they haven't turned from living for themselves in order to live for Christ. So it's good to have correct theological doctrine. It's good to believe what the Bible says. But if all it is is mental assent, that is not true saving faith. One of the things that if you, like me, grew up in youth group, you probably heard a lot, because I heard it a lot, was this concept of, okay, what does it mean for faith to show up in your life? And one of the sayings that I would often hear to try to emphasize this need for faith and works to go together, for faith to be demonstrated in your life, was if you were put on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Because you see, if you go to the court of law, if all of a sudden being a Christian is outlawed, and they say, we're going to try to gather up all the Christians and we're going to send them to jail. They're going to look at the pattern of our lives and they're going to look at how we act and what we say and our attitudes and how we treat other people. And they're going to look at our lives and they're going to say, is this person authentically a Christian? And if we ask ourselves, what kind of evidence would they use to make their case, and we don't have any idea how to answer that question, then we need to make sure that we are putting our faith into practice, that we have truly turned from our sins and put our trust in Jesus, that he is our boss and we are living our entire life for him. We need to make sure our faith produces a difference in our lives. And you might be asking yourself, well, how do we do that? How do we diligently develop a productive faith? I have seven ways. 
The first one, probably not a surprise to you, if you have been here any, around any length of time, letter A, you need to study God's word. If you want to more diligently, more faithfully put your trust in God into practice, you need to know who God is and you need to know what he says. Psalm 1, 2 through 3 says the psalmist meditated on God's law day and night. We need to know more about God because the more that we know about God, the more that we'll depend upon God. When things get hard, when the cares of the world try to dissuade us, if we know more about God, the more we'll trust him and the more that will be evident in our lives. Letter B, if we want to develop a productive faith, is we need to devote more time to prayer. Devote more time to prayer. And ladies, I get it. This is hard, right? And you might be thinking, I already spend five minutes a day, 10 minutes a day, a half an hour a day. Make it 35 minutes a day. Because Romans 12.12 says that we should be constant in prayer. It should be the heartbeat of our lives. As we're going about our days, our thoughts should be constantly centered on God. We should be bringing our concerns. We should be bringing our petitions. We should be bringing our heartaches, and we should be bringing our joys to our Savior. And the more intimate we are with God through a prayerful life, the more godliness will show up in our lives. I mean, think about it. If you've been married, one of the things that tends to happen as you spend more time with your spouse is you start picking up their habits. You start saying the same things they say, making the same jokes. The more you spend time with someone, the more you become like them. So the more we spend time in prayer, the more God's attributes will be showcased through our lives. A third way that we can diligently develop a productive faith, letter C, invest in God's people. Invest in God's people. If we are committed to walking with the faithful, if we're running with the runners, those who are pursuing Christ wholeheartedly, the more our faith will be strengthened. Hebrews 10, 24 through 25 tells us that we should be encouraging each other and meeting together all the more in increasing measure as we see the day approaching for Jesus' return. And every day we go by, It's getting closer to when Jesus is going to come back and bring his people home, which means every day that we go by, we should be increasingly investing in the relationships that will last for eternity. A fourth way, letter D, that we can diligently develop a productive faith is to meet the needs that you see. Meet the needs that we see. The more we we serve others, the more we emulate the one who came to serve. Matthew 20, 27 through 28 says that our Savior came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And if we want our lives to increasingly look like his, then we're going to meet the needs that we see. I don't know if you ladies were at the Christmas coffee, but Stephanie did a wonderful job of talking about how looking at the journey to Bethlehem, we saw the sovereignty of God in all the details. 
that there was a lot that had to happen, a lot of coincidences that had to occur that really weren't coincidence. They were God-ordained events in order for Mary and Joseph to get from Nazareth to Bethlehem. And what that reminded me of is that there are no details that are too small in our lives. God's hand is sovereign over all of them. So if you see a need, that is not just a coincidence. God wanted you to see that need. There was purpose and intention in that. And if you can meet it, if we see a need and we're able to meet it, in order to show that we love God and trust and depend upon him for everything, we better do our best to meet that need. We should strive to consistently serve those around us because as we do so, we put our trust in God into action. A fifth way that we can diligently develop a productive faith is to cultivate gratitude. Cultivate gratitude. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says, In everything, give thanks. That means when things are great, and that means when things are hard. That means when people are kind to you, and that means when people are difficult. In everything, we give thanks. Because when we have a heart of gratitude, we're demonstrating that our trust is not in our circumstances. Our trust is not in our possessions. Our trust is not in our gifts and talents. We can be grateful regardless of the circumstances because we serve a risen Savior. And we know in the end, he wins. And if you think about it, the opposite of gratitude is having a heart full of complaining, having a grumbling, discontented heart. And I don't know if you all were able to hear Dr. Jeremy Kimball came and did an intensive weekend um, in the spring or summer for CBI. I'm just going to tell you, if he ever comes back and does it, you all should come. If you missed it, it was, it was amazing. CBI is not paying me for this endorsement. I'm just telling you, uh, it was just awesome. And when he came, this was an offhanded remark, but it pierced me to the core. He was talking, this wasn't the main point of his discussion, but he's talking and he says, you know, complaining is an act of faithlessness. Complaining is an act of faithlessness. When we don't have gratitude, when we haven't cultivated a spirit of gratitude in our lives, what we're demonstrating is we don't really trust God for all the details. We really do not have faith that he knows what he's doing. And we're going to grumble and we're going to complain and we're going to argue and be discontent because we don't trust our sovereign God. If we want to put our faith into action, if we want to diligently develop a productive faith, we're going to cultivate gratitude. We're going to resist the urge to complain and instead, in everything, give thanks. A sixth characteristic of a productive faith is that it prioritizes restoration in relationships. It prioritizes restoration in relationships. Romans 12, 18 says that those who are saved should, as far as it is up to them, live at peace with all men. Colossians 3, 13 through 14 says this is especially true in our relationships in the church with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We should be quick to forgive, bearing with one another. 
And we need to make sure that if we truly believe that God is who he is, that, that Jesus has saved us through his death and resurrection, if that is the heartbeat of our lives, then we do everything that we can to live at peace with those around us. The other person may not deserve it. The other person may hurt you again. The other person may continue to be difficult. But as far as it is up to us, if we truly believe that Jesus is who he says he is, and that we want all our lives to showcase who he is, we're going to love and forgive like he did. And Romans 5.8 tells us that he demonstrated his love for us, that while we were still his enemies, he went to the cross. We need to go the extra mile, pay the extra dollar, spend the extra hour if it means that we can love someone else like Jesus loved us. The last way that I came up with that we can diligently develop a productive faith is to letter G, commit to obey. Commit to obey, regardless of the circumstances, regardless of how inconvenient it is, regardless of what it might cost you in terms of reputation. We need to make sure that we have committed to obey what God has said we are to do. Philippians 2, 5 through 8, tells us that we are to have the same mind as Christ. We are to think about God's rules and God's commands in our life the same way that Jesus thought about them. And you know what he did? It says in that passage, he was obedient to death, even death on the cross. And if we want to diligently develop a productive faith, we're going to strive to obey like he did. Now, there's a caution here, and we have to be aware of it. We have to get it out on the table. And that is, you might be thinking, okay, those are pretty good tips, but, like, anyone could do that. Like, anyone could spend more time in God's words. Anyone could pray more. Anyone could serve the people around them. How do I know if I'm seeing someone do this, if they're truly saved? And you're right. Someone can manufacture those things. Someone can pretend can be an imposter for a time. But those who are truly saved will diligently see more and more fruit in their lives. We'll see more and more of their lives showcasing who God is. They will have more and more faith-filled works in their lives. Because, as it tells us in verse 17 in our passage, living faith has works. Because dead faith does not have works. So living faith, faith, authentic, genuine faith, is accompanied by works. Someone who is truly saved, the pattern of their lives, will increasingly, more and more, each and every day, showcase who God is. If we truly have authentic faith, we're not just going to read the Bible more for a time. We're not just going to serve others more for a season. It will radically transform every aspect of our lives. It will show up in how we live. Each moment, each day, 
each passing year in increasing measure. During this time of year, this holiday season, our thoughts often turn to the incarnation. And that's appropriate as we celebrate the fact that Jesus came to earth as a baby. He humbled himself in order to come to this earth, to depend on his creation for his nourishment, for his food. He humbled himself, and that's an important reality to celebrate. But as Pastor Mike reminded us this weekend, the purpose of the incarnation was the cross. The purpose of the incarnation was the cross. Jesus came to a, as a babe because one day he would die as an adult. He would take on the penalty for our sins in order that we might have a right relationship with him. And when we think of the cross, we often think about the fact that Jesus wasn't the only one hanging on the cross that day. There were other criminals, people who deserved punishment, that were hanging on the cross. And one of those we often refer to as the thief on the cross. And people often refer to the thief on the cross as an example of how you can be saved and not have, and not have the opportunity to do much more for Jesus. And they'll say, look, Jesus said to the person, to the thief on the cross, they said, today you will be with me in paradise. And they'll say, look at that. All it takes is a genuine profession of faith. But if you think about it, we know very little about the thief on the cross, but we know at least three things. We know he was a thief. We know he was condemned to die. And we know he used his dying moments to tell the other thief who Jesus was. He didn't have a lot of time to put his faith into action. But in the time that he had, it was immediately evident. It was immediately evident that he truly believed that Jesus was who he says he was and that he was the Messiah who could save him from his sins. And we better believe that if by some miracle that thief had come off the cross, he would have spent the rest of his life doing the exact same thing because he truly trusted in Jesus as his savior. And in the moments that he had left, he made sure that faith was put into practice in his life. Ladies, I don't know how many moments God has ordained for you. I don't know how many moments God has ordained for me. But I know that if we are truly saved, every area of our life should be pointing people to our Savior. And we do that not only by telling people about our faith, but by putting our faith into action, living a life that is marked, that is characterized by faith-filled works so that others can look at our lives and witness what it means to have faith in Jesus, not only for their eternal salvation, and not only for our eternal salvation, but what it means to have faith in Jesus for our eternity and for every moment until he calls us home or returns again. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the good gift it is to know that if we turn from our sins, and trust in your Son, 
that we have been redeemed. We have been restored into a right relationship with you. Father, I ask that if anyone in this room, anyone who hears my voice, who has not done that, who is being fooled by an imposter faith, who thinks, well, I said a prayer one day, and therefore I must be saved. Father, I ask that right now you would convict them, that they would know that being saved requires a complete dependence upon you, and that they would be able to look at their lives, and they would know by how they live whether or not their faith is genuine. And for the ladies in this room who have tested themselves and who can say, yes, I truly believe in Jesus. I am dependent upon him. My life is committed to showcasing who he is. Father, I ask that our lives would in increasing measure produce good fruit. That our faith would be put into action in our lives in such a way that not only would people know who you are, but they too would grow to depend upon you, to trust you, to turn from their sins. Father, I ask that as we go into our discussion groups, Father, that you would help us to both encourage, exhort, and convict one another, that we would look at our lives and we would say, how could I be producing more fruit for Jesus? And that you would help us come alongside one another to accomplish just that knowing that our works can never save us. But Father, if our faith is genuine, our works will demonstrate who you are and what you have done in our lives. I thank you for these ladies. I thank you for the opportunity that we have to study your word. May we never take it for granted. In your son's holy and precious name that we pray, amen.